As long as you don't keep making the same ones over and over again. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 28, and today's guest is Matt Blumberg. Great lineup of guests coming this year. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by longtime industry friend, Matt Blumberg, who's currently the co-founder of Bolster and previously the co-founder of Return Path. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to see you. Uh, good to see you too. Uh, where do we find you uh, these days, uh, Matt? Sir, probably working remotely somewhere. I am sitting in my house roughly in the same chair that I've been in since March. <laughs> I, uh, just outside of New York City in Westchester County. Okay, good. Well, I, I hope that you and your family are, are doing well. Um, you know, we're recording here uh, right after, uh, I guess we're the first week of January of 2021. Uh, we're still knee deep in uh, our pandemic. Hopefully we see some light at the end of the tunnel here. But, you know, before um, we, we get rocking uh, too much into this, you know, I like to get, you know, my guest's first story. Uh, I kind of swiped that from uh, somebody that I had uh, listened to was doing a, a podcast. Give the listeners a little background of where you grew up um, and then, you know, anything that you think maybe uh, helped to foreshadow what you wound up doing for your career. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in uh, San Diego, which is about the nicest place in the in the country that's not Hawaii. Absolutely loved growing up there. My parents are still there. So it's a great place to go back and visit. The thing I could point to that would have foreshadowed my career uh, was my dad. So very close to both my parents, but my dad uh, was an entrepreneur. And um, he uh, started uh, after he went to business school and venture capital for a couple of years, which I also did early in my career. Uh, and then I went on to, uh, to found a company, which he ran for 30 to 35 years uh, in the tech space. It was a, a hardware business, a manufacturing business. But that's what I grew up with. Uh, it was, uh, I, I remember distinctly, I was 10 or maybe 11 and my dad let me sit in the dining room, like in the corner of the dining room when he and his three co-founders met to form the company and talk about the name and the mission and just just sort of always assumed I was going to do something like that. And I uh, ended up uh, doing that now a couple of times. It's incredible. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I, I think I've done 27 or 28 shows so far, and maybe a third of them, you know, are people that started companies. And it's so interesting to to hear there really is a foreshadowing event early in their career. You know, either they they had you know a role model that was an entrepreneur or a parent that was an entrepreneur, but there was definitely something early on from that early lemonade stand to whatever it was to you know help precipitate. Uh, you know, being a, a, a startup guy. Uh, so that, that's really interesting. Tell us a little bit about uh, schooling. Um, you went East Coast. I did. Yeah, I went to, uh, to Princeton. You know, I absolutely loved it. Had great education. Um, you know, Princeton doesn't have a business school. You know, I was there for, for the, uh, the general liberal arts experience. Um, um, I majored in, uh, in urban planning 
there actually was, you know, kind of a consistent theme there, which is I've always been interested in building things. So I was, uh, I, I played around before I settled on urban planning with um, actually doing architecture. Um, and then I had moved to civil engineering as kind of my area of interest, but I was also always really interested in public policy and urban planning is kind of the, the fusion of all those things. So um, great interdisciplinary education, never used it professionally. So there was a method to the madness of urban planning. At least when you look backwards at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You and I caught up very early uh, in 2020, right after COVID hit, and you were out in Colorado. Yes. Tell us uh, about that experience, because I, I found it fascinating when you first explained it to me. Yeah, so I have a lot of um, a lot of connections and spent a lot of time in Colorado over the years. Um, Return Path, which is the company that I ran in the email space for about 20 years, had uh, a very significant presence in the in the Denver and Boulder area. I'm very close with uh, a, a pretty prominent venture capitalist there named Brad Feld from Foundry Group, who was on my board for most of the 20 years. So I've never lived out there, but I've spent a lot of time there. Right at the, you know, sort of as the uh, kind of public consciousness and uh, of the pandemic was was um, uh, reaching fever pitch, which was the first couple of weeks of March, Brad called me up one day and um, he's uh, uh, very close with Jared Polis, who's the governor of, of Colorado. And I had met Governor Polis a couple times over the years. He was also a tech entrepreneur, founded Blue Mountain Arts, founded ProFlowers, founded Techstars along with Brad, and then went on to be uh, in Congress and then got elected governor. Uh, so he and Brad have been very close. And, and Brad called me and he said, hey, you know, Jared Polis is looking to tap someone uh, who's an entrepreneur, who's a business builder from the private sector to come help him stand up. Uh, his response team uh, to the pandemic, he believes that uh, state government and, and his state government employees and leaders are absolutely tremendous, hardworking, very knowledgeable people, but they're not wired to, to bend rules and break rules and do things differently and arrange the pieces in, you know, in sort of different order. Uh, and that's what the response to the pandemic is going to require. So the governor is doing a lot of that work himself right now, but he really wants to tap someone for six to 12 months to come do that. And I know you don't live here and wouldn't be here permanently, um, but I also know you're available at the moment and you do have exactly that experience set. Can I, can I convince you to, uh, and part of what you can do is find your permanent replacement as well. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, I spent uh, only a few weeks on the ground out there. It was uh, incredibly interesting. It was super rewarding. Uh, it was a ton of work. There's a ton of learning because uh, I've never done anything in government before, I'd never done anything in public health before. But along with uh, the team that the governor uh, gave me, we then really built uh, an organization that we called the Innovation Response Team in something like six days. We marshaled a lot of forces from the private sector in Colorado. Uh, we were able to marshal a lot of forces from inside of state government. And uh, we stood up an organization with you know, like six swim lanes and KPIs and staff and budget and everything else in a very, very, very short period of time. Of course, you know, it helped that there was panic and a, you know, public health emergency. So we sort of had everyone's attention, but uh, we were uh, really able to, to get a lot of work done in a short period of time. Uh, we had, I can't even remember all of the, the swim lanes, but, you know, one of them was on alternative sourcing of PPE uh, and getting local manufacturers to retool their lines to pump out hand sanitizer and masks and gloves. Um, one of them was on testing and putting together the state's initial testing strategy and 
as you know, each state was kind of on its own. So we had to figure out how to procure tests and understand uh, the different types of tests and where could we use an antibody test versus an antigen test versus a PCR test versus a rapid test versus surveillance. So a lot of the things that now I think everyone, it feels like everyone in the country is a public health expert. There was a, a lot of work that we did in short order to again, take the few people out of state government that really understood it um, along with mobilizing a lot of other resources. Um, you know, I think the team in the end was a couple hundred people and, um, and that's the work we did. So we got started with it. We found a, a very capable person in the Denver Boulder area named Sarah Thunberg to take it over from me. Sarah was both, had both public sector and private sector experience. So in some ways she was actually a lot better than I was at, uh, at taking it and running with it. Uh, but uh, great, great, uh, and really, really interesting experience for, for the first uh, uh, leg of the, of the pandemic. Um, I wrote a whole bunch of blog posts about it. There's a series of seven blog posts on my blog that uh, sort of describe it literally day by day. And uh, my blog is uh, onlyonceblog.com. That's great. Congratulations. And you must be doing lots of podcasts and being very professional because I didn't even have to prompt you for the, uh, the blog posting. <laughs> I'm actually, the, I'm a little sad because I'm about to rebrand my blog, but I haven't done it yet. So the, the sneak preview is um, the new domain is startupceo.com, uh, which matches the book that I wrote, uh, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit. So there you go. Oh, that's impressive. Uh, well, congratulations. You know, again, that's uh, great work that uh, that you guys did. It's interesting, without uh, getting too deeply in, in it. It's it's interesting that the governor back in March wasn't waiting around for federal government to kind of come in and do what you know perhaps some would think the federal government was going to do. Uh, it seems like they they circumvented that almost immediately. It was pretty clear pretty quickly that states were going to be on their own. And it was pretty clear that the, the so-called like federal emergency stockpile or whatever was, was bare. And, and I remember distinctly, I think these numbers are right too. Uh, the governor got off of a call with vice, the vice president and all the governors and, you know, got some allocation of something and said, well, you know, the good news, so they're, they're cleaning out the national stockpile and we got, you know, 70,000 PPE kits. And the head of public health in Colorado said, well, the state is currently burning through 68,000 of them a day. And it was like, oh, and that's, that's what's coming from FEMA or from the stockpile. So it, I think it was pretty clear early on that uh, states were going to have to figure out a lot of stuff on their own. All right. Uh, so let's go back to the, uh, you, you, you leave Princeton and where do you go from there? Uh, a few different jobs uh, before I started Return Path. Um, my first job was management consulting uh, at uh, a firm called Mercer Management Consulting, which is now called Oliver Wyman. Then uh, I decided to uh, had a great opportunity to to jump to venture capital, which um, is a, a really tough field to get into. There just aren't very many jobs in it. So I was fortunate enough to uh, work for a couple of years at General Atlantic Partners. Um, GA today is a you know massive global private equity firm. At the time was a really like down the middle of the fairway venture capital firm, Series A, Series B, five to $10 million checks. And the firm's roots uh, at the time I joined in 94 uh, were um, mostly software. You know, they were doing some very, very early internet deals in 94, 95. There wasn't much to, much to do, but um, Priceline and E-Trade um, were uh, a couple of the deals that, uh, uh, that we were working on. 
Uh, and after being there for a little while, I decided what I really was more interested in doing was being on the operating side and building a business and running a business. Although the experience at GA was incredibly valuable to understand the financing process and be on the other side of it. And I have lots of, lots of good friends today in the venture capital business who I worked with while I was there. Uh, looked at a bunch of different opportunities to move into an operating role, fairly young and very limited experience, right? Consulting and venture capital, that only, only teaches you how to operate so much. So sort of interviewing for jobs to be, you know, kind of CEOs, special projects guy. And the one that was most exciting, which I ended up uh, jumping on, uh, was at a company in New York called Movie Phone. If you remember the old 777 film, interactive telephone, movie guide and ticketing service. I knew I knew your voice from somewhere, Matt. <laughs> Not my voice, um, but he was, he was one of the founders of the company, the guy that did the voice, Russ Leatherman. So I joined Movie Phone in, in 95. I uh, was there uh, through the sale of the company, which was in 99. Uh, and uh, so really kind of rode the internet 1.0 wave. And I had a, you know, a pretty interesting role there. My, my first project, and this will just give you the point in the moment in time. My first project was to figure out what the internet was uh, and figure out in particular if, you know, we, we, the, the company had been thinking about building a visual, visual version of movie phone, which was a telephone service. And I think they had done a kiosk somewhere like as a test run. And um, they were trying to figure out whether um, strategically what we should do was build a website or we should do a proprietary deal with one of the dial-up services. Um, so again, you, like, you really got to wind the clock back. The company had all these offers on the table from America Online, as it was called at the time, CompuServe, Prodigy, Delphi, Genie, um, you know, everything that people were accessing via the 14.4 modem to build an exclusive proprietary walled garden version of movie phone. And my first project was, should we do one of those? Which one should we do? Or should we take a chance and build uh, you know, an, an HTTP website on the open web and hope that people would come to it? So uh, we, did, we made that choice. We built, built the website. And the years I was at movie phone, I really had a couple of different jobs because uh, we structured things differently at different times. But essentially, I was the GM of the internet business there. From the, from the construction of the first website uh, through the sale of the company to AOL, head of marketing and the head of product management for the whole brand. So um, I did have some very good, I know this is a marketing oriented uh, uh, show. Um, so I, I did have some very good experience uh, running um, both the, the sort of brand marketing for Movie Phone, which was really, really interesting. And, and we had a very outsized um, spend because we had a ton of bartered media. Um, and then also ran the trade marketing side of it to, uh, uh, to movie studios and movie theaters, um, in addition to product and internet. So I did that through 99. Uh, and then in uh, late 99, um, after we sold uh, Movie Phone to AOL, I started Return Path, uh, which was a 20-year run in also in the marketing space running uh, email marketing. I have so many questions about return path, and and I, I want to do them in a in an organized fashion. So you know, you, you leave uh, Movie Phone uh, immediately, start return path. There had to be something percolating in your head while you were at Movie Phone. There's a problem that I need to solve. What was that problem? Yeah. So you know, there were there were kind of two things that we set out to do at Return Path. The the one that was obvious was fix a bunch of things around email. Uh, so we, we ended up in a business called email deliverability or email certification. Um, the business we started was a little bit different, um, which you, you remember you were one of our very first clients, uh, was email change of address and email list hygiene and bounce management. Um, but all of those kind of problems around email were things that, that I had identified while I was at Movie Phone 
as being kind of gaps in the infrastructure around commercial email. So one of the one of the things we did at MovieVone is we built one of the I think one of the very first ever commercial email applications called MovieMail in 1996 I think or maybe 1997. You know, people would sign up, they'd give us their zip code, their favorite movie types, and each person would get a custom email coming out of the database on Friday saying which movies were opening in the theaters near them with clickable show times to buy tickets, you know, e-commerce content database. And you know, this, is, this is pretty early on and there was very little supporting technology for it. We kind of had to build everything ourselves. By 1999, there was an email service provider industry that was really good at getting mail out the door, but there were still a whole bunch of things missing around the way delivery actually works and blacklists and spam blocks and bounces. And you know, so the, the substance of the business at Return Path was really rooted in the experience that we had um, uh, at MovieFone because we built this really powerful application, but then had all these problems delivering. But the other thing that was, uh, you know, sort of uh, the, I always call them sort of the twin pillars of Return Path. We were uh, very interested from the beginning of the company in being uh, a very progressive employer. And what I mean by that is, is really pioneering some, some new ways of working and new ways of managing uh, team members. You know, we did a bunch of things in 1999 and 2000 that are, that are pretty commonplace today, but, but no one was doing at the time. Uh, and that stuff also really had its roots in the experiences I had had in consulting and in venture capital and at MovieFone, which were, you know, knowledge worker companies, but not run in a contemporary way. They were run, you know, sort of an old, old school companies. Um, I, you know, I just sort of kept mental notes along the way of like, you know, someday I'm going to start a business and we're going to do things differently. You know, I'm really proud of a lot of the work we did at, at Return Path over the years. We built a phenomenal culture. We had a very people-centric, um, values-driven organization. And, you know, like I said, it seems kind of silly in 2021 because some of the things we did everyone is doing now that a lot of companies have sabbatical programs. A lot of companies have open vacation policies. There's a degree of transparency that you see in a lot of companies now, but those things were very, very unusual in, in 99. So we uh, were very proud of pioneering a bunch of those things. So long answer to your question, but we were really hoping to solve two problems, uh, make email marketing work better and make employment work better. And so when I, I remember um, it was probably you coming to visit me uh, in those days, uh, I was at Brooks Brothers. I think you, I think the first sales call I did with you, you were at Hanover. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I was at the, the company store uh, working at, Han which was owned by Hanover. Uh, that would have been uh, 99, you know, early part of 2000. And then I went over. Um, so yeah, maybe it was company. It was store. Once, once I hand over and then when you moved to Brooks Brothers, I, uh, I remember meeting you upstairs at the store there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was, it was the eighth floor. Um, that's a whole other story that that store is now closed. But w when you have a, a business, a new business like this, and you know, as I've bought, you know, lots of software and technology over over time, you know, to support marketing initiatives, there's a, a fairly long lead time, especially for something that is transcending, you know, new ground, you know, like, you, know you, you were creating, you know, somewhat of an industry. Was that a frustration? Was it hard to educate folks on what it was you were really trying to do? Did people instantly get it and open up their checkbooks? Well, you know, what, what, what did you experience? It was very uneven. And I, I think you get this with technology companies, you know, the early adopters totally got it. You know, our first product was a change of address product for email. And I think the reason I found my way to you is someone said, oh, you know, Mark will get this, right? He's a direct mailer. 
or has a lot of experience with direct mail, right? The Hanover business was a lot of catalog and direct mail and catalogers had a, a resource called NCOA, National Change of Address. And we were building a product called ECOA, Email ECOA, Change of Address, right. right? So the first batch of customers, you know, you, you always have your early adopters. You have to do your best to make things easy and integrated and, and uh, you know, sort of cross the chasm. Yeah, I, I totally remember the ECOA and, and you're right. That's, it, it did make, it made a lot of sense almost as soon as, um, you know, we started to talk and, you know, and, and I think I've said this to you over the, the years as well, you know, as you were building, you know, this business and, and maybe I'm jaded by having watched, you know, so many businesses now get started, make a name for themselves and then get bought by a larger, you know, organization. Ultimately you sold and we'd like to hear about that, but you sustained a business for 20 years. What was it about what you were doing that, I'm going to imagine you had an opportunity to uh, get out if you wanted to sell, if you wanted before that 20 year period, what kept you going? Um, you know, there were a couple things um, and, and I'll sort of bring it back to the twin pillars of the business. One is we just loved what we were doing. Like we loved the culture we had. We loved the people that we were working with. Uh, you know, we we're just having a great time. But the other, you know, in the substance of the business is um, we felt like we had more to do. Like we were continuing to innovate, to add a lot of value to the, uh, to the industry and to our clients. And we pivoted the business a few times over the years. So the thing we ended up doing was different than the thing we started doing. And, you know, uh, it, it always felt to us like, hey, there's just a lot more to do here. And even when we sold the company, we, we had that feeling too, both of those things, right? We loved what we were doing, who we were doing it with, and there was more to do. But, you know, 20 years is a really long time for a venture-backed company. Uh, a lot of us, uh, you know, were interested in doing other things with our lives. Our shareholders benefited from some liquidity. Uh, we found a great uh, partner and a great home for the business in, in validity. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of the right time. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's I, I think I've mentioned this also to you, you know, so much of what you were doing seemed to me, as at least as I understood it, that would make sense as part of, you know, a bigger umbrella company that was offering email deployment services or other kinds of database marketing services. And there's a lot of those companies, you know, that are standalone today, that seemingly would better be certain my mind, seemingly be better be served you know, being owned by an Oracle as part of their responsive, you know, email platform or a Salesforce and, and their exact target, you know, acquisition. Yeah. I, a lot of them, I guess, like what they're doing and, and, and choose to, to go it alone. Yeah. But we were also, you know, we continued to grow the business and build value. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't static at all. Right. No, uh, obviously it wasn't. Uh, we talk about mistakes, though. Um, any mistakes? You know, I, I think only only about a million <laughs> people that have you know talked to me after they they've heard some of the shows. You have said, you know, geez, I really like hearing successful people tell me about the things that they wish they had done differently. Any any one or two that stand out for you? One, we we did not build as capital efficient a business as I think we could have at Return Path. Um, we didn't waste money. Um, we weren't one of these like crazy dot coms that was burning cash in the streets, but we just didn't have capital efficiency in mind, which is something we're doing very differently at Bolster. And you know, the result of that at the end of the day, it's, you know, we built a hundred million dollar business that was great, and we sold it for a multiple of that, but it, it cost us too much money over time to get there. Is that a function of the fact that you pivoted a number of times along the way? Yeah, that, that, that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, the, the sort of the search for product market fit was, was you know, too windy and long and, and elliptical. I think another one that uh, is more sort of around hiring, it, it took me a while to get the right senior team in place. 
and there were a couple of positions that I had, I, even for most of 20 years, had a hard time, really had a hard time filling. And, and I, it wasn't until maybe halfway through the 20 years that I decided that we really needed to invest in leadership development to grow our own leaders. By the end, we really had that model figured out. Like my, my final executive team at the very end, every single person on it was either a founder or someone who had come into the company as like a director level person or maybe a VP and grown up in our own system with our own training and our own culture. And that was a really good model for us because we got great people in in the middle who had plenty of outside experience and fresh perspective to bring, but not people who you know, were, were so far along in their career that they would be you know, harder to mold into the way we wanted to mold them. And I realize that's a very startup-y way of thinking, but, um, um, but that was definitely a, a lesson that we learned, learned along the way as well. I feel like there's so many things that we, we messed up along the way. We did acquisitions that didn't work. We, uh, you know, had product launches that didn't work. We didn't keep our technology fresh enough and periodically had to like spend a year digging ourselves out of a hole instead of innovating. Long, long list of lessons to learn. Well, the story is that you can make mistakes and still be successful. As long as you don't keep making the same ones over and over again. Yeah, well, true, true. But one of the things, you know, that we've uh, talked about is you wrote a book. Tell us about Startup CEO, a field guide to scaling up your business. I've been writing this blog, which I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, since like 2003 or four, like very early um, CEO blog. And the blog was really about the craft of being a CEO, being a, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, leadership, management. And in um, 2012 or so, I was having a conversation with Brad Feld, who I also mentioned earlier on my board. And Brad had written um, uh, a number of books uh, the most popular of which is a book called Venture Deals, uh, which is has become really kind of the seminal work about how to get a startup financed. I had a little like bit role in, in Venture Deals um, that kind of came up accidentally. Brad had sent me the manuscript and asked me to, to read it and give him some comments on it. I wrote all these really long comments. And when I sent it back to him, he said, oh, do you mind if we publish the comments as part of the book? So if you read venture deals, there's a sidebar in each chapter and they're like 50 chapters and the sidebar is called the entrepreneur's perspective. So you read the book and you read, you know, Brad saying, oh, you know, here's how you, uh, I don't know, here's how you do a, a venture debt deal. Um, and then there'll be a sidebar saying, you know, as an entrepreneur, here are the things I cared about when we did something like that. And at the end of that, I was having this conversation with Brad and I said, uh, what do you think about, you know, he had this whole book uh, series of startup this and startup that. Uh, I said, you know, what do you think about uh, me turning my blog into a book called Startup CEO? Uh, and uh, he said, you know, I think that's a great idea. He introduced me to the publisher at Wiley and Sons, and I essentially turned my blog into into a book. Although I ended up having to fill in a whole bunch of things that I hadn't written but had, had meant to over time. So I was a little bit of a, a, a labor of love, but a, a great project. And you know, it ended up being, I think the first edition was about fifty-five chapters, and it's just designed as uh, a little bit of a how-to guide for a first-time CEO to, you know, for me to sort of document, like, here are the mistakes I made and here are the things I got right. And it's just a bunch of how-tos, you know, how to raise money, how to do a board book, how to do a board meeting, how to fire people, how to hire people. Uh, and, you know, it's organized into a bunch of different sections, strategy, money, talent, execution, boards. Uh, after I sold Return Path, I did a second edition and added a whole new section, another five or six chapters about selling your company, um, and that was published um, uh, in June of last year of 2020. 
uh, my team at Bolster and I, and, and my team at Bolster is, is a lot of people that I've worked with at Return Path. Um, we are actually writing a sequel that's going to be published in uh, next month uh, or possibly in March. That's called Startup CXO, uh, a field guide to scaling up your company's critical functions or critical teams. And it's basically, think of it as a book of books. It's a version of my book for each executive function in the company. So there are 10 chapters on how to do startup sales, 10 on how to do startup marketing, 10 on how to be a startup CFO, HR, business development, technology, product, et cetera. That's great. That's really interesting. I can't wait to get my signed autographed copy. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. So uh, that, that's great. Tell us uh, about Bolster. You mentioned it. I thought it was interesting, you know, when we uh, first talked about Bolster, um, I don't know, is it maybe it's six months ago, how many people were part of your team uh, at Bolster that you worked with at ReturnPath? That says a lot about, you know, your confidence in uh, that, that hiring that you talked about before. Well, it's a, it also says a lot about their, their uh, confidence in me, <laughs> following me a second time. Uh, no, we have, we have a, a great team at Bolster. We actually have eight co-founders and, uh, uh, and, and now a team that's, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 people in total. Uh, we're doing a totally different kind of business. We're, you know, after 25 years in media, marketing, technology, et cetera, we're building a very different kind of business that sort of pulls together a lot of the themes that we've, we've talked about in the last hour. Um, so through my book, Startup CEO, um, I ended up over the years doing a tremendous amount of mentoring and coaching of first-time CEOs and, and spent a, you know, a lot of time uh, kind of in that space. As I mentioned at, at Return Path, we developed all this uh, sort of leadership training work. We, we were very methodical about how we scaled up the business, how we scaled up our team. The Startup C CXO book is all about scaling up each individual function. And those two things, uh, you know, sort of uh, set the stage for what we're doing at Bolster. So Bolster is, uh, is a marketplace for uh, very curated executive level talent uh, to be connected to startups. One side of our marketplace, the sort of buy side or demand side is startup CEOs. And, and we define that as, as CEO of anything from zero in revenue to a hundred million in revenue. So it's sort of the, the venture backed universe, both small and large people we call members are um, executives. And, you know, obviously, Mark, you, you know, you're, you're a member of, of Bolster, but we have uh, a few thousand members. And uh, we have members in every single functional area, marketing, sales, product, technology, HR, finance, et cetera. And uh, what we do at Bolster is uh, make matches between the supply side and the demand side to help startups think about scaling their executive teams and think about scaling their boards in kind of a new way. Uh, and hopefully a way that's much more contemporary. So, uh, you know, the, the world today is much more agile and dynamic. The gig economy is not just here in the form of Uber and Lyft, but it's here in the form of executive work too. And more and more uh, people uh, who are accomplished senior executives who've had a great career want to work a little bit here and a little bit there, have more varied uh, work, have multiple clients, 
they want to give back and be a mentor, or they're interested in board opportunities. And that's really the kind of stuff that we match um, startups uh, with the talent to do. So it's either, I would say there's sort of three types of roles that we match. One would be executive consultant. So that would be an interim leader for a department, a part-time leader for a department, um, or just a project-based consultant. The second would be, uh, you know, sort of advisory work. So matching people to be coaches or a functional advisor across anyone on the executive team. And the third thing is uh, independent board members. So, uh, so that's what Bolster does. Uh, we connect um, vetted executive talent for on-demand jobs at uh, venture-backed companies. Yeah, that's great. I, I from the day you uh, you explained it to me, it, it made total sense because I, I think it was uh, you, you just described me, you know, almost to a T. You know, somebody that would you know like board roles, like you know interim kinds of you know opportunities could be project work. And I think that there are you know lots of folks uh, that I come across uh, almost every day that um, you know are interested in in that. So uh, good luck to you on on that. I I, I hope. Uh, that it will uh, be as successful as, as the other uh, projects that you've worked on. Thank you. Yeah, so, so far, so good. We're nine months in and uh, off to a good start, but we had a lot, lot of room in front of us. Yeah, that's great. Tell me about pathforward.org. Pathforward uh, was a company that we created at Return Path and spun out into a separate company and made a nonprofit. So it's a 501c3. Uh, and it's a wonderful organization. It's, it's almost five years old now as a standalone organization. Uh, although, as I said, it started as a, um, an internal project or program at Return Path. Uh, but Path Forward provides uh, a smooth on-ramp back into the workforce for moms who've taken a break to raise kids or to care for older relatives or, or anything like that. And it's, it's a really, really interesting and challenging problem we solve. And a problem that quite frankly just confuses me because uh, we have pandemic aside, generally pretty low unemployment in this country. And in the businesses that I've been in over the years, tech, marketing, media, there's, there's way more jobs available than, than people to fill them in a lot of cases. Women who've had a career of you know, two, five, 10, 15 years, and then they take five years off or they take 10 years off and want to get back into it. And uh, there's all this, you know, sort of built in bias to the system against hiring people like that. Uh, and it's just kind of crazy. It's like, you know, talent that's sitting on the sidelines. So what we created at Return Path was a, was a returnship program. And then we rebranded it Path Forward and spun it out. Uh, but basically, um, Path Forward creates programs for companies and does a tremendous amount of work with company enablement to get, the company, get a company ready to hire people like this. And then creates these structured 16-week uh, paid jobs, and they're not fellowships or internships. Like someone is is working at the company, uh, but Path Forward does a lot uh, in the way of professional development and networking and skill building for um, you know for the women in the program. The company has served uh, almost 100 clients, including some amazing clients like Amazon and Walmart, um, as well as smaller companies. The uh, company has served hundreds and hundreds of women at this point. We have an 80% higher rate. So at the end of the, uh, on average, at the end of the um, uh, 16 week program, 80% of the uh, uh, women are offered full-time employment. So uh, it's doing great work. It's actually a little bit more related to Bolster if you think about it, than it is Return Path. Uh, and uh, you know, we, I continue to uh, serve as the board chair there and some, uh, Tammy Foreman, who's our uh, uh, CEO. Very nice. You're, you're a good soul, Matt. Uh, I, can I can see why 
you know, so many people have uh, flocked to stay with you uh, through Bolster. So that, that's great. So we, we end uh, these shows with this uh, two minute drill. It's this, the show is called okay. the marketing playbook podcast. And, uh, you know, for those football folks out there, it's a two minute drill. So just one or two word answers, uh, seven quick questions. Uh, you ready? I am ready. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? It feels a little cliche, but I'm going to go with Apple. And I know Apple's a good company. It's a company a lot of people hate. There are things about it people love and hate, but what, re what I really admire about it is their product are just so well designed, so intuitive and so well designed. I wish every product was well designed like Apple. Right. The favorite app on your phone, and I'm guessing it's an Apple phone. <laughs> <laughs> it is an iPhone. My favorite app here, I'll give you one that's probably a little bit different. I'm a uh, little league coach uh, for my kids. And there's an app called Game Changer that I use all season long uh, to manage my team, score games, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, and another app that does some of the other things uh, called Team Snap. So those are two apps that I'm in constantly. I, I only wish my son, uh, who I coached uh, with many years, um, wound up uh, following in my footsteps and coaching, um, even when he didn't have, you know, doesn't have children. Um, he was, uh, you know, in college and he was uh, coaching and he introduced me to Game Changer. Um, I wish I had that, you know, years ago when I was, you know, keeping the book, um, you know, in, with a pencil. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from. The last website other than Amazon that I shop from is um, a specialty clothing retailer called Aurora, O-R-O-R-O, and they make heated apparel. So in this COVID world where the only way to hang out with friends is to do it outside and it's like 30 degrees out, uh, I have on the way a heated vest. So you have to charge it with a USB charger at night, I guess, but... Uh, you can, you can get through a social event outside. Okay. That's a, that's perfect for me because I am always cold. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were. Guitar, singing, guitar. Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Uh, well, I got to go with Path Forward on that one. Okay. I knew that would uh, be it. Um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? I need more hours in the day. So whatever superpower gives me more hours in the day, stop time for two hours in the middle of the day where I'm working and no one else is. Or That's a good one. And then the last one, other than family, what's your most prized possession? We have a uh, second home, uh, which is a cabin in the mountains of Southeast Idaho, uh, right near Grand Teton National Park in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And we absolutely love it. We love going out there and spending time, winter and summer. That's great. And so lastly, uh, Matt, thank you again for, for doing this. Um, where can people reach out to you on social media? LinkedIn, uh, you know, is, is, is the easiest one. I do have a Twitter account. I'm not a, I'm not an avid tweeter. Uh, as I said, my blog is only but it's about to become startupceo.com uh, and uh, Matt at bolster.com. All of those work. I'm, I am an email guy, as you know. So yeah, you're a very, uh, very adept at email and, and quick, a very highly responsive guy. So uh, somebody takes after my, uh, my own heart. Uh, anyway, Matt, great to see you. I'm glad that you're well. Thank you for all the good work that you did in Colorado to help the, the folks out there um, and, and all the good things you're doing with Bolster. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. 
That's it. Today's game ball goes to Matt Blumberg for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, culture. Every company has a culture. Some develop it, and others just let it happen. We heard Matt speak about how he wanted to have a company that was a progressive employer. If you are leadership, even though so many companies have evolved over the last few years, there's more to do. Push harder in this area to reward your employees and develop an environment where people can be successful. If you're the employee, push your company to invest in training and quality of life initiatives. Number two, we've heard this one before. Even very successful people who start companies and have successful exits have usually made many mistakes along the way. You'll not get everything right the first time, but keep trying. Learn from those mistakes and stay positive. And number three, if you're thinking about starting a company, make sure that you're clear in your mind and can communicate to others what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Matt was an early leader in the email marketing space. He saw a void in a young market, but he knew which problems he was trying to solve. It just took a number of iterations before he was able to find the right positioning in the market. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. (laughs) 